We're going to be in the latter verses of the book of Acts, chapter 7 today. Take your Bible, turn there. I'll have you stand in a few moments. Acts, chapter 7. We're going to start actually a little earlier than I think, uh, verse 58. Let's back up just a little bit for sake of context. We considered some of these verses last week in our study of Acts. We're going to go all the way back to verse 54. Let's do that. Verse 54 of chapter 7. And the Bible says, When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Stephen was preaching to them, accused them of not following God, um, of, of not seeing that Jesus was the Savior. And so he had preached a brilliant message about Israel's history and the prophets failed, or the, the, the inability of the people to see the prophets for who they were. And so these men now are hearing Stephen say, You people are just like your forefathers. So they're mad, is this phrase. So when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. It's a way of expressing anger. But he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing on the right hand of God, and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they, the Pharisees and Sadducees who were accusing uh, Stephen, these religious leaders, these scribes, then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, Lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they, speaking of the church body, were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Now, this would not have been a one-day event, but probably three months of ongoing daily mourning on his behalf was, was the custom. Verse 3, And as for Saul, he made havoc, the word means destruction of the church, entering into every house, inhaling, dragging men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, they, the church, that were scattered abroad, went everywhere preaching the Word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for the ability, the privilege of gathering together, Lord, as, a, as the church family here at Eastland. Lord, we, we've enjoyed the music. I trust people here have been encouraging with the things they've said to one another, that we've edified and spoken words of love and encouragement. And Lord, now as we look into Your Word, we, we ask for ongoing insight. Lord, understanding, and then, Lord, most importantly, for application. That, Lord, we would be hearers of the Word only, but doers of it. Lord, so we're not deceived in, in thinking that, Lord, we are something we are not. And so, Lord, help us with this simple thought today. And I ask for your help with this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for standing. I always appreciate that. Last week, we examined the exemplary life and death of one of the greatest church members who has ever lived. And, and, and I'm deliberately casting uh, Stephen in that light because Stephen was a church member. He wasn't called as an initial 
apostle or disciple. He was a second generation Christian, if you will, one generation removed from Christ, maybe alive in the same lifetime, but not a man who immediately maybe was exposed to Christ. And he was a church member of the church in Jerusalem. Stephen was chosen from among the membership of the church and the direction of the apostles to serve as a deacon, a deaconos, someone who would help them in the distribution of food, the daily ministration to the widows, as the Bible tells us. There was so many people, there have, could have been perhaps tens of thousands of people who are now Christians. Uh, this church had grown incredibly large. The simple administration of the church was a challenge, a special need of, of food getting to the widows was, was not occurring. And so the apostles met this need by assigning seven men to this task. And chief among them, the first chosen among the church members themselves, was this man, Stephen. The Bible says he was a man full of wisdom and the Holy Ghost. That grace um, was in his life in an extraordinary way and that he was held in great esteem. He was held in esteem by the church members. He was held in esteem, obviously, by the apostles. And most importantly, he was held in esteem by God. Stephen's biography in chapter 7, though written by Luke, of course, was actually inspired by God. And so what is said here is said from and by God about this man, and it is extraordinary. He was a man full of love and full of grace and full of God. He was one of only a few select men who ever saw the Lord Jesus Christ um, post-resurrection, and I mean that once he had ascended into heaven, uh, Stephen was able to see him, and he saw Christ most interestingly standing. And I don't know that anything uh, is implied there more than that he saw Christ, but it's almost as if Jesus was applauding and approving of the way this man lived and the way this man died. Highlighted among his many virtuous qualities was his indomitable grace. We talked about that last week. What an example of, of grace Stephen was. You know, the kind of grace that meets opposition with kindness. The kind of grace that it goes through difficulties and, and trials and trusts as God. The, the kind of grace that when someone's unkind to us, still finds that grace sufficient and enabling enough for us to do something kind to that person and for that person in return. That manner of spirit, as the Bible says, as, a, as someone who had the countenance of an angel, was in Stephen. Stephen, life. His life takes away from us uh, any argument that we can't be Christ-like, that we can't respond in kind. Now, while Stephen's life was spent in service, his death initiated a change in the church and a change toward the church. Before Stephen, the gospel was voiced and shared only in Jerusalem. And the Bible tells in Acts that it was voiced all throughout Jerusalem. Everyone in Jerusalem probably had an opportunity by now to hear uh, this gospel, uh, this good news that uh, God came in Christ, died for men's sins, went to the cross, was punished there, experienced our hell, rose again, and now at the right hand of God, and people could be saved by grace through faith. Almost everyone had probably heard that uh, in Jerusalem. But the Great Commission says, start in Jerusalem and then go into Samaria and then Judea and to the uttermost parts of the world. And hence, at this point, the Great Commission had not crossed the borders of the city of Jerusalem. But through the events of Stephen's death and because of it, the gospel leapt from that city to Samaria. And we will see in a few chapter or a few verses uh, that Philip goes to Samaria. It went from Samaria and then to Judea. 
and into the uttermost parts of the world, all initiated by this stoning death of Stephen. The religious leaders of Jerusalem had for some time now stood in great angst and opposition uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ and then the followers of Christ after his resurrection. They had acted as a group, as a whole, as stated in our text. Crucifying Jesus and now murdering Stephen in like fashion. The parallels between Stephen's death and uh, Jesus' death, of course, are replete. To this point, there had been mostly threatenings towards the church, most of them directed towards the apostles. There had been some beating, again, of the apostles, and there had been uh, a short-term imprisonment. But now, persecution broke out in a large scale. Uh, the entire church was now the object of this religious, uh, the Jewish religious religion's angst and antagonism toward the new Christian faith. And this persecution most likely was emboldened by Stephen's death. You have to understand, the death penalty was reserved for the Romans. Uh, there was not to be done uh, at this time by Jewish control, but these men took matters in their own hand and evidently got away with it. So now they're emboldened in a greater degree to continue to persecute and prison. The Bible doesn't say at this point there's any more deaths. That may come at a later point in history. But there was wide-scale persecution, and the Bible says people were dragged, both men and women, to jail. And uh, something else changes here. All of a sudden, the group now focuses its spearhead, spearhead um, using an incredibly gifted man, a Jewish champion whose name was Saul of Tarsus. This man with incredible zeal and passion, this Hebrew of Hebrews, a disciple of Gamaliel who attained the highest uh, honors of a Pharisee became the blunt instrument of the religious leader's persecution of Christians. He became the sword of havoc, as the text says, of the church's intended destruction. Saul gave incredible effort and energy to dismember and to completely eradicate this fledgling faith in Christ. He wanted to stop the movement before it could grow any further. But he and these religious men were like the fool who blows upon the dandelion seeking to destroy its influence and propagation. Just doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? You know, I'm going to tear this thing up, and in the process, you're just spreading the seed everywhere. And this is what they were doing, whether they understood it or not. They scattered the church, and the church simply became, so the church ecclesia, the church dysphoria. Ecclesia, the church assembled, dysphoria, the church scattered. But they were still the church, and they still retained the mission of the church, though scattered. As Paul persecuted and wrought havoc and hailed, meaning drug people to prison, he may have limited some people's individual freedoms, but he only served to fan the flames of Christianity to further reaches of the Roman rule. You know, we all understand this, I think. As a rule, persecution only seems to advance the cause that it seeks to destroy. And that's just not a Christian tendency. That, that is really true in every place. In this case, the grace of God and human propensity seem to have swollen the effects of grace in their lives. And it was, we see this in the defiant burial of Stephen. 
They saw this man stoned, but the Bible says devout men, most, most likely Christian men, because burial was a very public thing, gathered the body of Stephen. And again, this was a ritual that occurred over days. And despite the fact they stoned him for his faith, these men gathered Stephen and they did public lamentation for him. They were bold in the grace of God, just as Stephen had been. We also know the church was bold and grace-filled because despite being scattered, again, they retained the mission of telling others in Christ. Matter of fact, the Bible says this was an incredible, it was a severe persecution. Um, we don't know exactly how this occurred. Uh, the Bible is sort of specific in telling us that the church entire was scattered. The apostles remained in Jerusalem. Um, that's perhaps because they just had this defiant attitude, we're going to stay here, it's important. We do know this later in the book of Acts, the church at Jerusalem remains um, you know, kind of a mother church. It, it's a strong church. So it's very likely that Stephen, being a Hellenist Jew, meaning this, he was a, he was a man of foreign birth who converted as a proselyte to Judaism, um, that most likely this, this persecution was really occurring to those kinds of people, to the Hellenistic Jews. And that would make some sense. Remember, the Holy Ghost came on the day of Pentecost, which gathered Jews from all over the world. Many, many were saved, and tens of thousands were saved in the ensuing days, little, the next you know, few weeks. Many of them would have stayed, taken up residence with other Christians. And so most likely what was happening here is they were trying to get all these people out of Jerusalem. It was just easiest to scatter them, because we do know this, when they went back, they went back to all these places, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, they literally were scattered over the known world that time because of this persecution. And so these non-citizens were scattered, but no doubt all suffered. But more importantly, all this was done as part of God's plan. It's all about focus. We can, we can focus on the cruelty of these men, but overarching this entire scene, of course, is the sovereignty of God and His desire to see the gospel propagated through the whole world. So God is presiding over all these events. And as the Bible rehearses to us in the book of Genesis and the life of Joseph, what others meant for evil are God intended for good. And as Romans 8 says, all things work together for what? For agnathos, God's good. Maybe not the individuals perceive good in the moment, although that is still, I, I believe, true in terms of rewards one day. This is God's good being worked out. Christianity's good that's being worked out through these kinds of events of persecution. And I've often told you, I, I, I tend to, you know, have a mastery over the obvious. You know, it's something we all can look at and see together. And it is that obvious that I want us to stop and pause and consider this morning. So the, the Bible says there was a great persecution, and because of that, people were either dragged to jail or they had to flee. But how did this spread occur? What were the mechanics of this uh, propagation of the gospel? Well, you know, as we look at the book of Acts, it starts with a focus, a spotlight on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, His, His resurrection occurred. It's just, He's just about to ready to ascend, and so there's this the scene with the Lord and these 500 people in attendance. And then we see the spotlight kind of shift. If you think about a play upon the apostles and how these men are gathered together and the Holy Spirit falls upon them and they become great witnesses. And specifically view are Peter and John and of course the, the man they healed and we see so much there. Of course then as we just have studied we, we see a, kind of a second generation focus on Stephen looming on the horizon. This large personality figure, you know, 
it would be Apostle Paul. Saul here persecuted the church and then in times the same zeal or greater zeal in propagating the church. And then we're going to see Philip very quickly. But just kind of sliced in here is a focus on another entity. And look with me at verse number four. And the Bible says, therefore, okay, what's that next word there? They. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. For this moment, the word of God draws our attention to the church. Not an individual personality, not an incredibly gifted person, not someone driven like Peter, uh, maybe with all this love of a Stephen, the special gifts of Philip. But the spotlight falls on the church membership. It's not a fancy word in they, but that's who's implied there. For a moment, the Bible says, the members themselves of the church of Jerusalem are responsible for the propagation of the gospel into all the world. Now, we think about the Apostle Paul, of course, and man, what a great man and all that he did. But you know, if a leader doesn't have anyone following him, that's a problem. Because it's the church that gets the work done. If I was to distill verse 4 even further, I would say this, they evangelized. The word preach here in the Greek is the word that we get evangelism from. This isn't the kind of preaching that I'm doing right now. It's not what it's saying. It's saying, um, Jerry talked to Tom, and Tom talked to Alan, and Alan talked to Daniel. It's like that. Individual people, they, they evangelize their neighbors. They evangelize their coworkers. They evangelize the people across the street. They evangelize their neighborhood. They evangelized everywhere, the Bible says. It's word, everywhere they went. You know, in today's church and business world, much is made of leadership. Its role, its responsibility, you know, how to be that effective executive, how, how to execute more, how to be more you know, efficient, expedient, getting things done. The hyperbole reaches to such a stage that it says things like this, everything rises and falls on leadership. <laughs> well, that's a little terrifying. But it is hyperbole. Now, I understand this. There are people who have some abilities in leadership, and I think that those people who have leadership abilities can probably greatly enhance the effectiveness of a church. Okay? A dad's a leader, a mom's a leader. We, we understand that. Good, leaderships, good leadership helps us get good things done. Poor leadership, it can destroy a nation, it can destroy a business, it can destroy a church. But especially in the church, in the final analysis, the true treasure of this place, the true potential of any church, lies and falls on the membership of each individual person. You see, we here gathered, everyone here, we're all equal, we're church members. 
Now, we, we have different assigned roles. We do different things, and that's all I have is a role. And I understand my obligation to, to lend administration and oversight, some accountability, different things. But everyone here is a member. We're all servants. We've all been gifted in a supernatural way by the Holy Spirit. Some of, those, some of that gifting isn't, you know, um, doesn't shine forth like it might for some other people. But make no mistake about it. If you're a child of God, then you are the unique vessel of His Holy Spirit. And God has a job and a task for you. And He's equipped you for that. The gospel, uh, this, again, this is so obvious, but I want you to think about it. The gospel didn't spring forth from Jerusalem because of some plan initiated and deployed by a think tank of the apostles. They would later develop plans. But the truth was this. It wasn't because Peter, John, these guys go, okay, now guys, how are we going to reach Samaria? How are we going to reach the city of, of Tulsa? You know, what are we going to do here? I'm not saying that wouldn't have been okay. I'm simply saying that's not what happened. It wasn't leadership that took the gospel throughout the world. It was the church. It spread because they, the Bible says, the members of the church held the gospel as a treasure in their hearts. And out of the abundance of the heart, out of the treasure of the heart, the mouth can't but help speak. And if it speaks the words of the gospel, it is evangelizing. And that's what happened. And that's what they did. They spoke the gospel. And the Bible says they evangelized. They shared person to person to person to person everywhere they went. I mean, it's a pretty encompassing word. That means if this member went to Tulsa, they evangelized. If this person went to Owasso, they evangelized. If that person lived in Jinx, they evangelized. If this person was in Bisbee, Jinx or Sand Springs, wherever they went, if they were in school, if they were at a job, if they were at the daycare, wherever they went, everywhere they went. It wasn't a church on Sunday only kind of um, congregation. Christianity. They evangelized everywhere. The cause of Christ advanced. The church dysphoria grew the church ecclesia and many of them in time. A simple thought is this, the strength and possibilities, and, and I'll make it personal, of Eastland. The strength and our future possibilities of Eastland is directly tied to the missional mindset of every member. We all come here, and I think we get something out of it. I hope we do. That's my prayer. And uh, this is good. I can preach. Okay, like this is we're at the ceiling here. You guys have been here. I've been here a long time. The music's good. We do the best we can. Some days we're like, man, you're just there, you know. And we do all we can to train teachers. You know, we're trying to provide a setting that you can just walk into and derive some help and benefit. We have a program for kids. But honestly, if that's all that is, we're in big trouble. Because as 1 Corinthians 16 says, really, if anybody's going to be persuaded, it's persuaded because of the congregation. It's persuaded because you're singing, you're involved, your countenance, your spirit. And the community is entirely dependent, not on what happens here, but what happens where you're at. The salt where you live, 
the, the place you're doing something. And if Eastland is going to have a future, it is not mostly dependent upon the man who stands behind this pulpit, but upon the members who sit in the pew. And you have the same responsibility I do to love, to protect, and to promote the interest of God here at Eastland Baptist Church. Every one of us do. Every single one of us. And none of us can take an exemption card on that. The strength and possibilities of Eastland is directly tied to you and to me. Now, in the context of our chapter we're reading is persecution. And I, and I told you, we studied 1 Peter. It'd be a little hard for us to always find application here because we don't live in a, in a, in a Roman world where simply avowing Christ could cost us our life. We have entirely different kind of freedoms than they did. And that'd be true here in Acts chapter 8 as well. But these people took it upon themselves to share the gospel. They spoke. Again, I also think about this, individual members. At this time, these people didn't hold position. They weren't necessarily starting churches. It was done by the apostles. They didn't have keys to the office or the children's wing. They didn't have title, defined obligation. They advanced the cause of the gospel because they were Christians. They were members of the Church of Jerusalem. That's what church, members of the Church of Jerusalem do. Is everywhere they go. They can't help to teach and speak about Jesus. In their context, in that effort, they were being persecuted, but they stayed missional. You know, that's not our challenge, honestly, today. This is, if we're really honest and real, being missional in the face of adversity isn't our challenge. I almost, and I'm careful, I almost wish it was sometimes. As I said, there's this reality, the persecution almost tends to uh, propagate that which it seeks to destroy. When people get up in our grill, we tend to, we tend to do something. When the existence of the church is threatened, we, we might do something. You know, honestly, I, I think we may, we may face a greater challenge of staying missional, of taking our faith everywhere. Because see, today it requires us overcoming our apathy. To be missional, we have to overcome apathy. We have to overcome our affluence. We have to overcome our indifference. We have to overcome my schedule. And what I want to do on a Saturday, you with me? It has to overcome our materialism. It has to overcome our narcissistic self-gratification, orientation, and culture. You have to be a real Christian today if you can take the gospel everywhere. I want to use this phrase. Today, we have to choose to bleed. Now, you follow my line of thinking there? We have to choose to bleed. No one's coming after me with a sword, at least not yet. No one's seeking to put me in prison for my proclamation of the gospel today. And I dare say if I went out in some park, they might chase me off, but I'm not going to go in prison for that. So that means I have to choose to bleed. Now, by that, I don't mean be obnoxious or whatever else. I mean, 
I have to choose to come to an outreach meeting and take a, a track route and go do that. That 15 minute difficult trek. Smile at me. You gotta choose to bleed. When you walk out of here, you got roast waiting on you. You got kids coming, whatever. That means you have to veer out of your way, grab a track, and then veer out of your way at the store and say, hey, do you attend church somewhere? You, you, you get my jest? You got to bleed. You got to choose to bleed. Because no one's coming for your blood just yet. And I know there's a political argument, and I care nothing about that right now. That's just some of the social stuff. What I'm saying is suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. You have to choose that today. Now, I know this. The Bible tells this. In fact, anyone who lives a godly life for Jesus Christ will, in fact, suffer persecution. Okay, I understand that. You take a stand for Christ and you stand for morality and you stand for ethics and, and you make a stand for just doing what's right. Yes, you're going to have people come at you. That is an absolute truth. I'm talking about evangelism. You get to choose to bleed a little bit by veering out of your way and sharing it. You get to, to, to give effort to the communication that, hey, my life has been spared from hell and I'm going to heaven one day. Hell, let me tell you about a Savior who changed my life. Or even, hey, do you go to church anywhere? We've got a great church. I'd love, for you to, I'd love to invite you. We have to choose to bleed. We have to choose that in our life of busyness and distraction and self-gratification, to go ahead and have the grace to give and to sacrifice, to care, to go, to love, to share, to voluntary, voluntarily be mission-minded. Well, they have the obligation of someone saying, you go do it. We have to choose to pick up a track. We have to choose to share with someone individually. We have to choose to engage in that spiritual battle. What's presented to the text isn't our reality. Matter of fact, with the curse of Ezekiel 16, fullness and idleness of bread keeps us from our task. It's perhaps corrupted our focus and maybe even our appreciation for the gospel. So you and I are left with pondering the truth of God's word and holding ourselves personally accountable to it. Heaven is real. Hell's real. Eternal consequences are coming for your neighbor and the cashier and, and the moms and dads that your kids play soccer with. And understanding that there's there's consequences and there's blessing if we say something. We're left to ponder those realities. You know, Satan's tactics and still in some part of the world is still direct frontal persecution opposition, but those are mostly poor countries. Satan understands we're already distracted and that just might focus our attention. And so he chooses the challenges I present. So our potential is right here in these pews. And all of us need to realize today there's a price to be paid for advancing the cause of Christ. For these people, it was persecution. For us, it may be some level of inconvenience, choosing to bleed, or just proving our love for Christ. But I'm going to tell you, it's true of any organization. It can be business. It can be whatever. There's a price to be paid. Now look up here. As much as some people wish this was true, 
organization and event, advertisement, billboard and whatever, program, leadership, as much as we want all these things to secure, again, personal, Eastland's future, none of that will be enough. What's enough? Well, for you to live your faith everywhere. That'll be enough. That'll secure the future of this church. That'll give your kids a place to go. That'll give your grandkids a place to go. It'll make Sundays special and Wednesdays. It'll make the Holy Spirit's freedom here to act among us different when we take on this obligation. You know, a general can plan a battle, but the soldiers win and lose it. Hey, we have a captain. We have a captain. His name is Christ. And he has left, this is amazing, he's left the task of the advancement of the gospel in the church with us. It's on us. This morning, we are the church assembled, Ecclesia. We're here to worship and teach, encourage and serve, to give. And in five or seven minutes, we're going to become the church dysphoria, scattered. And that's actually where the real work begins. When you leave this building, more personal, when you leave this building, take your faith with you. When you leave here today, take the name of Jesus with you and speak. When you go to work, when you go to the ballpark, when you go to the grocery store, when you go to the soccer game, when you go to school, these people took Jesus everywhere. And God help us to do the same. Let me ask you to stand today if you would.